How is Christianity becoming more like Mormonism? (laughs) And also, we're going to be talking today about what is with this new hermeneutic that we must re-examine the Old Testament in light of ancient Near Eastern documents. Today we're going to be talking to Jason Oaks. Welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Like I mentioned in the introduction, today we're going to be speaking with Jason Oaks, uh, his website, peopleofthefreegift.com. And we've had Jason on several times before. And uh, Jason is an expert in the area of Mormonism. Today, we're going to be speaking a little bit about Mormonism in the light of uh, how is Christianity becoming more like Mormonism. And you might be saying, what? Right. Well, Jason made that comment to me in a conversation, uh, definitely caught me off guard. And I thought, wow, now that is interesting. I would love to hear that. Uh, And so we're going to be talking about that. Well, the original intention of this podcast was to speak on that subject. But as uh, conversations amongst friends go, sometimes uh, rabbit trails happen. Well, we started talking about Um, ancient Near Eastern texts. And uh, there is a phenomenon going on today where people are starting to uh, look at the secular ancient Near Eastern texts, texts that come from various uh, uh, civilizations that surrounded Israel. And uh, many people right now are reinterpreting passages in the Bible in light of of these secular ancient Near Eastern texts. Now, uh, there is a biblical hermeneutic where you will look at uh, uh, history and the culture and what was going on at the time that the author wrote the book. True. But should we look at secular sources to define biblical statements that we find in the Bible, various phrases and words. Jason and I would argue absolutely not. We're going to be looking at uh, some of the instances that this is actually happening. uh, And what it does, in a nutshell, guys, is puts the Bible in a different light where suddenly the Bible is no longer truly inspired of God. And that the Bible does, in fact, contain... Uh, scientific errors, prophetic errors, errors that might uh, 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 misrepresent what really happened historically, uh, that is a problem. So, yes, we're going to be welcoming Jason Oaks back. Uh, Jason, welcome back to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Always a pleasure, Michael. So, friends, uh, Jason and I, we, you know, as many of you uh, who follow the, the Facebook feed, uh, we just had the awesome opportunity to meet for breakfast. 
Uh, it was so cool. Jason was on a, a vacation passing through town, and I got to actually uh, sit down with him and his family, awesome family, and uh, enjoy a meal. And we had some conversations. We've been going back and forth in emails uh, as of late. And he said something that was very provocative to me. It was, it you know, it just caught me off guard. Uh, that Christianity, in some ways, is becoming more like the LDS. Jason, what did you mean by that? Well, I, what I have in mind is uh, the conversation actually usually, usually goes the other way. Um, you know, I deal a lot with um, ministering to the LDS and. When I'm speaking in churches or talking with Christians, a lot of times what I'm hearing is people are coming to believe that there's at least some segment of the LDS church that's becoming more Christian, that um, particularly there's BYU scholars um, and professors who um, they label themselves as neo-Orthodox Mormons and um, they have been going around and speaking with Christians and doing these dialogues with Christians, oftentimes in Christian churches, and um, they've adapted their language to using a lot of Christian terminology, um, and as a result, um, there's a lot of Christians out there who are believing that LDS are becoming more Christian and that the LDS church as a whole is starting to become more uh towards grace. Um, there's a couple of talks that have been given by Brad Wilcox and um, Elder Uchtdorf um, at one of the recent general conferences that they were talking about grace. And because, you know, the, the main issue is that you have to understand their language and their terminology and how they use it and what definitions they use. A lot of Christians are hearing these things and thinking, that the LDS church understands grace and that they're coming our way. And so um, what I've been seeing as I've been thinking about some of the trends that are going on in Christianity and in the church is I'm actually seeing the opposite. I'm not, I'm not seeing the LDS becoming more Christian. I think that they're just learning how to use our terminology well but what I am seeing and what I am concerned about is that I see practices within mainline Christian denominations and movements and well-known Christian authors and speakers and pastors that are actually reminding me a lot of LDS distinctives. Uh, so, in other words, things that make the LDS church distinctive, either in their beliefs or in their practices, that are are happening within the, the mainstream uh, Christian churches and denominations and with individual Christian speakers and, and pastors and authors. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one of those that you brought up uh, is just this role of hearing prophets and heeding the words, you know, we need to have something new, some type of new, fresh message, and then looking at the scriptures in the light of this new, fresh message. Um, did you want to jump on that one first? Yeah, let's do that. And uh, what I mean by that is obviously a lot of people would probably be familiar that the LDS Church has a living prophet, and they believe that one of the signs of the true church is that you would have all, at all times a living prophet and also 12 apostles 
and the whole structure that they believe that Jesus established, um, the priesthood authority, all that stuff. And one of the, the key marks of a false group, um, you know, and sometimes you want to stay away from using that C word, um, but one of the marks of those types of groups is that there's a dependency upon this this key leader and one of the ways that they hold that dependency is by um, believing that that person is the spokesman for God and that they're receiving personal revelation. Well, what I see going on in the Christian church is this movement that kind of got popularized. I wouldn't say it got started because uh, it was going on before that, but it became popularized with uh, books like Jesus Calling and Sarah Young um, writing first person as if Jesus is the one who's speaking. And that's very much so because she believes that Jesus was speaking to her and believing very much that um, her words were actually the same level as, as Scripture, and encouraging Christians to do the same thing, that you too can hear specifically from Jesus, and you can receive personal God's personal word to you. And for you, that is on the same level as you would read when you you study your Bible. And I, I'm seeing some scary stuff that's coming from that and a real dependency and opening up of um, Christians to a lot of scary stuff. And, you know, your previous guest, Marsha, she really hammered the dangers of that kind of thing. And so I don't want to uh, reinvent the wheel there, but you know I'm I'm seeing this you know not just as an isolated book that became popular, but more as a, a common way of thinking. And there's some prominent, you know, Christian leaders even out there that, you know, we we tend to think of them as sound in teaching sound biblical doctrine that are starting to get caught up in this, and. Um, You've done a really good job in the past of, you know, talking about the new apostolic reformation and the word of faith movements and some of the key leaders in those movements who do this kind of stuff all the time and, you know, claim that they have visions and personal encounters with Jesus all the time and that they're receiving these revelations and prophecies. Um, there's another individual who's just on Facebook. He self-publishes through Amazon. Uh, his name is Matthew Robert Payne, and he is claiming to have all sorts of encounters with um, with Jesus, with former prophets um, oh, in yeah. heaven, and angels, and recently, uh, apparently he had a conversation with Michael Jackson, and uh, so... Uh, he he's self-publishing these books and he's trying to make his presence known through Facebook and through, you know, through Amazon and um, people. And he's offering, sometimes he's offering his books for free. And so he's, he's trying to get the message out there that, Hey, you know, this is real and you can have these kind of encounters too. And I've had these encounters and he's passing on this stuff as if it's coming straight from God, straight from heaven, straight from, you know, angels and prophets and through him. And it's really scary stuff. Mm, wow. Yeah. 
I, <laughs> having conversations with Michael Jackson, you know, I, I, I would imagine that conversation was a real thriller, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, Michael Jackson, he did come to me. He wanted to talk to me first, but I was not into the conversation. So I told him to just beat it. But, um, so, oh, I am sorry about that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> oh, the puns, they'll never end. I'll tell you what. Um, but, uh, wow. And, and so when you have these conversations with, you know, I was just listening to a podcast with, uh, uh, uh Brandon House, uh, recently, uh, Rick Joyner and all the things he is claiming, this guy is claiming he's having conversations with all types of, of uh, uh biblical characters and and it's just a day-to-day thing uh this is very dangerous because these guys are are coming back with these these ideas uh in fact i saw a commercial for that uh, heaven is for real movie right. the other night same type of thing right. where now when this kid or this book rather cuz you know how much did this this uh uh burpo child say I don't know I mean we weren't there but um he comes back with these ideas and whatever he says at this point about heaven now <clears throat> in some people's minds is going to become equal with scripture when you claim that you're getting revelation from whether you're talking to supposedly talking to Jesus or the apostle Paul or Peter or whoever you know and you're having these conversations you're basically claiming that whatever follows, whatever they reveal to you, is canonical. It's it's rock solid. It's scripture. And that right there is how you birth cult movements and just right. bad doctrine. False and doctrine. You said it uh you said it well when you you called it as a dependency upon other sources uh than scripture. To, to gain truth. And it's not that we don't have the Holy Spirit. It's not that God doesn't guide us and lead us and you know, direct us. It isn't that, it, that he doesn't illuminate the text, the scripture to us. But where these individuals are going is in a direction that is almost looking to that experience first and then kind of using that experience to interpret scripture rather than the other way around. And that I think is kind of the growing theme that I'm seeing here because mm-hmm. another thing that I'm seeing in the church is this movement that we need to start interpreting the Bible in the light of other texts. And, sure. you know, immediately in my mind, when I'm hearing that, what I'm hearing is I'm hearing Joseph Smith you know, wanting to restore the true church and this whole movement that was going on in America at the time, you know, that the the true church needs to be restored to the earth. You know, it's been lost in some form or severely tainted to the fact that point where we need to, you know, restore it, restart it, uh, make it fresh, make it new. And then he claims he has these encounters with the angel Moroni who leads them to supposedly these buried golden plates in the ground. And they, you know, when they're translated, you know, these texts are in reformed Egyptian. And when he translates those through the power of God, then um, now we have the book of Mormon. 
And that's supposed to be this history of the ancient America, Americans and these Israelites who came over to the Americas and had this whole thing going on. Jesus appears to them. And so now we have this whole other scripture. Then you have Joseph Smith going on personal revelation, getting doctrine and covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. And there are other scriptures. You have all of the prophets going on before them. And so you have this uh, thing that goes on with LDS people that they will read these other scriptures or hear these other leaders, and then they would take the words of scripture and interpret them in light of these other things. And so what I'm seeing going on in the church in relation to that is that uh, this dependency upon sources that have actually come into existence fairly recently. Um, things like, uh, even if you take the Dead Sea Scrolls, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls were an awesome, awesome discovery when it came to validating the text of the Old Testament. But it came with a whole lot of other documents that were written by the, this group, the Essenes, who lived in the desert um, during the, the, the time period just before when Jesus came, and they were there, and uh, people are looking to... Now, th those were found in, like, 1948 and the, the following years. That's not that long ago. I mean, when you consider when Jesus came to when the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, that was not that long ago. Now, what people are doing is they're taking stuff like the Dead Sea Scrolls and other ancient Near Eastern texts, other, you know, Gospels um, that they're claiming that they have found, you know, be it, you know, Gospel of Judas, um, you know, Gospel of Mary Magdalene, Gnostic Gospels, essentially. And they're finding these other texts and saying, we need to interpret Scripture in light of what we're learning about these other texts. And the reason why they're saying this is because um, it was, you know, written around the period in which the, the biblical books were written. Um, they claim to have been written by, you know, people that are prominent, you know, in the scriptures or things of that nature. Um, and they're saying that we need to understand the words of scripture the way that somebody who lived in that time period and spoke that language and um, understood the culture, the way that they would understand it. And so, they're looking to these texts and then bringing the interpretation of those texts into how they interpret scripture. And in some cases, what I'm seeing is it's drastically affecting how they're interpreting scripture and they're deviating drastically from the, you know, historic traditional views and some of the core issues and even in the way that they view scripture. Okay, and yeah, it, it's kind of like what we see with many different movements. It's as if 2,000 years ago, uh, as the apostles started dying off, suddenly the church fell into somewhat of a, a great apostasy. We kind of just lost our way. We got confused. And for 2,000 years, somehow um, the church just really started losing it until we had this, this prophet come along and give us the Book of Mormon or 
a group of people came along and gave us the Watchtower magazine. And suddenly we found our way again. We're back to, oh, okay, good. Now we can unlock the scriptures again. Uh, and that and that is um, a dangerous place to be as far as hermeneutics go. The Bible interprets the Bible. And so when you come ac- across somewhat um, vague passages where you read something and you're like, well, what does that mean? Uh, for example, you'll come across something about uh, a divine council. Well, you can go back into the Old Testament and you can start searching around for different times that this is mentioned. And you can find that the Bible will define itself. You can look at at, at words and phrases and find every time that they're spoken about in the scriptures and really determine, you can deduce what is being talked about there. When you start stepping outside of the scriptures, looking at ancient Near East documents, these types of things, and trying to find what the Bible means through a secular source, you're going to run into trouble. I, you know, I, I don't see how that can help you out at all. I think you're going to find yourself in a lot of binds. I, I think you brought up an excellent example of one way in which this is drastically changing things um, by taking this approach. And first, I, I just want your listeners to understand when we're, we're talking about ancient Near Eastern texts, what we're talking about. Um, we're talking about sources that come from Egypt, from Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia meaning Sumeria and Akkadian sources. We're talking about Hittite. We're talking about Ugaritic texts, which means um, one of them being uh, about Baal. We're, we're talking about the Code of Hammurabi coming from Babylon and from Assyria. So when we're talking about ancient Near Eastern texts, what we're talking about is, um, yeah, they're ancient texts that come from the general area in which the Bible was written, but when I listed off those places, I, I hope that it raised some red flags for your listeners because do you think that we need to interpret, say, you know, the Old Testament law or the Old Testament creation narrative in light of other documents that come from Babylon, from Egypt, um, from, you know, sources talking about Baal? That that should be like a, a serious red flag that, um, you know, like basically, um, and really this shows the distinction. You, you have, uh, and usually it's like a lot of the creation-based ministries, the, the ones who are defending creationism, that are bringing to our attention that, you know, we have other cultures who have written about a flood narrative. Um, or a creation narrative, or, you know, a, a, some sort of, like, fall episode, um, some sort of, like, Tower of Babel type of thing. And so Genesis 1 through 11, you know, it just, but we would look at that as this is validating the fact that this something happened that was valid. Now, right. there's coming from, you know, these people who are saying we need to look at these ancient Near Eastern texts would say, well, you need to interpret the flood narrative in Genesis 6 through 8 through like the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, that's coming from, you know, the surrounding area. 
instead of the other way around. You know, like we need to take the epic of Gilgamesh with a grain of salt in light of what the the truth is that's found in Scripture. And so it's the other way around, and they're they're completely flipping and saying, we well, in order to understand the Bible, you need to understand, you know, the stuff that's coming out of Babylon and Egypt, and, uh, you know, stuff that's about Baal and Asterisk and all this, uh, these other gods that the Old Testament talks very clearly about, and God's saying, stay away from them. Don't be like the surrounding cultures. Um, it's the exact opposite that we read about in Scripture, that we're supposed to allow God to speak directly to us, you know, through his word, and that we shouldn't be like the pagan nations. And I just think that's incredibly dangerous. But yeah, well, yeah, the, the divine council is a great example of that, though, um, kind of remembering what we were talking about. <laughs> and the divine council really comes from looking at Canaanite text, looking at, you know, Babylonian text, looking at these other groups that um, have come. And you can even go on, say, Wikipedia and type in Divine Council, or you can go to, like, DivineCouncil.com, which is a website by uh, Michael Heiser. You can you can find out what it is that they're talking about when they talk about a divine council. But what you will find, and you're going to be shocked, is that they're going to be promoting those very texts that I just talked about and saying this, this is the key to unlocking scriptures. And that you're going to find that the way that they came to the conclusion about divine council is that they look at the Canaanite culture, for example, and their religious worldview, the chief god was named El. And then he had this whole other, you know, lesser gods who were, you know, around him. And this idea of a divine council is very prominent in these other cultures. And so they, they use terminology like heavenly host or sons of God, sons of El. Um, and so when they're looking at these other texts, then they come to the scripture. I think you can see where I'm going with this, that God is, the Hebrew word for God is El. And it's um, in the plural form, it would be Elohim. And where you have, you know, El Elyon, the most high God. And that's another term that would be in these other cultures would refer to this chief God of the Canaanites who's head over this divine council. And so what they're doing is literally defining biblical terms in light of these other texts. And then they're taking the meaning from those other texts and applying it back on the scripture. And so then when you come to Psalm 82 and you read that Elohim stands in the council of the Elohim, then you're naturally going to assume that Oh, that's divine counsel. He, he's there's these other gods, and you know, Yahweh is the the chief god, and he's over these other gods. Um, and so then, and then you come to Deuteronomy 32, and Deuteronomy 32 verse eight has a variant reading in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And whereas, you know, um, our Old Testaments, most of them come from the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text, and it says, you know, according to the number of the children of Israel, 
And, you know, God divided the, the nations according to the number of the children of Israel. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation that was a few centuries before Jesus came, well, that has a lot of times, it has a variant reading and saying the angels of God. And then you get the Dead Sea Scrolls, which has the sons of God. And so now all of a sudden you have people who are teaching things like, well, what happened is that when you read Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel incident, what happened is that God disinherited the nations. He chose Israel through Abram, um, who he made it into a mighty nation, and he chose him as his inheritance and his his posterity as his inheritance. And so Yahweh became the God and so Israel got lucky. They have the chief God over them because, you know, they follow the right way. And so you have the rest of the nations that are scattered, and they believe Deuteronomy 32.8, according to the Dead Sea Scroll variant reading that we didn't even know about until 1948, says that God divided the nations according to the sons of God, who they interpret then in, in light of the Canaanite text. And they say, well, that's the divine council, and God scattered, you know, the nations, and now he's appointed these divine council members over these nations, and there's 70 of them. And now then they read Psalm 82 and saying that, well, what's going on there is that God's judging these these false that these members of the divine council because they haven't done their job they've misrepresented him and they've ju- you know they haven't shown justice to the people they're ruling unfairly um they're receiving worship for themselves and so god says to these divine council members that you're going to die like men and so you get all sorts of weird reinterpretations of scripture because they're looking to these other sources to help them understand the Bible. And these are the very sources the Bible tells you to stay away from them and don't be like them. I've called you out of them. Interesting. And so you, you, with this type of a mindset, you end up alienating believers from believing that they can actually gather the real meaning from the scriptures. Uh, you know, it, it's almost like when the Catholic Church at one point uh, had all the Bibles in Latin and only did the, the, the uh, you know, you had to, you actually had to know Latin to understand the scriptures or, uh, you know, the Watchtower magazine that says you can't just read the Bible by itself. You need to read the Bible with the Watchtower magazine or you're not going to really get it. Or, you know, there's many within the Messianic movement that say, Oh, you have too much of a Greek mindset. You don't really understand the scriptures. You need to go mm. back and understand the Talmud uh, and, and really get into uh, what these rabbis in the Talmud, these secular Jesus-hating rabbis, uh, in a sense, you know what they said about um, various things. You need to understand their teachings before you can understand the rest of the scriptures in the New Testament even. Uh, it, it, it really puts a lid on a person's ability to fully grasp the Bible. You need now an expert. You need somebody that you must follow. You almost need, uh, in these situations, you almost need a cult leader, in a sense. 
Okay. And, mm. and, and yeah. I'm not saying that, yeah. that uh, like, for example, you brought up Dr. Michael Heiser. He's not a cult leader by any stretch. Uh, but, but now you're starting to depend upon what these other people are saying because, hey, who of us have actually sat down and read all these ancient Near East documents and then – uh, even more so, had some kind of a command of them where you've actually uh, read them enough where you can start drawing parallels and pulling things together and saying, ah, now that's what the Bible's really saying. Uh, it, it's it's actually a, a very dangerous thing. And we're back to where was Christianity for the last 2,000 years because we didn't have these documents in our hands and we're, we've just been running around in the dark, bumping into walls and not knowing what our our Bible actually says. Um, God apparently was not intelligent enough to write 66 books in such a way that we uh, uh, can just pick it up and read it and understand it. We had to go and start sourcing all kinds of documents outside of the scriptures. Uh, uh, you mentioned the, the Code of Hammurabi and the Law of Moses. Who, who is saying that and what are they, what are they talking about there? Okay. Uh, well, uh, Michael Heiser, um, you know, we've mentioned you know, a couple of times, and you know, when it comes to um, popularizing this idea that we need to be looking at um, ancient Near Eastern texts in order to properly understand Scripture, he's probably leading the charge. Um, and I've been listening, you know, to his podcast for quite a while now to try and understand where he's coming from and uh, how his approach to Scripture and um, how he interprets text, and even, you know, how he would define this whole divine council, which uh, he is actually leading the charge in re relation to that one as well right now. Um, and so what I have heard him express in relation to his view of Scripture is that when when God... He believes that it ultimately came from God, um, that, but that God chose men that he wanted to work through, uh, be it Moses, um, David, or any of the you know New Testament writers as well. And what he 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 knew what he was getting. In other words, uh, he knew the limitations of that human author. Uh, he knew the culture of that human author. Uh, he knew the language, the intellect level, um, the, the, the ability to write, um, all of those life experiences, all of that stuff. And so what they are proposing is that one of the reasons we need to look at these other texts um, to understand Scripture is because they are saying that we falsely believe that the writers of Scripture were starting from scratch, um, or that, you know, God was just speaking directly through them, that they would say, well, the, the law of Moses really wasn't uh, the original thing. Uh, he basically, there was other codes, moral codes and laws, law codes that were out there, and then the classic one would be the Code of Hammurabi. And uh, what the biblical writers were doing was basically repeating stuff that their culture was spitting out, but they would make changes every now and then. And when they made changes, then you need to pay attention because they're making a theological statement about Yahweh, who was the God over Israel. And 
So when it comes to the law of Moses, uh, that comes into play because their explanation for a lot of the, the, the laws that come under critique in today's culture, um, the ones that are looked at as strange or why did he have to say that kind of stuff. Um, instead of us looking at it saying like, well, that reveals in some way the character of God and his command to be separate from these other nations, to be different, to just be distinct. And in some way, we need to understand, you know, what this is teaching us about the character and the holiness of God. Well, they would look at it and say, well, that really isn't coming from God. That, that's, you know, a reflection of the culture that they lived in. God wasn't going to spend all of his time arguing against their culture, and he wasn't going to spend a lot of time changing the, the biblical author into somebody that they weren't. He was going to use them, their culture, their limitations, to communicate the big idea that he wanted them to get. And so that that's uh, another example of how this whole idea of the ancient Near Eastern text comes into play. You know, another thing that came to my mind is you were um, talking about it, and you mentioned the Talmud, and you were mentioning the Messianic movement and things. One of the things that Michael Heiser and people of this uh, this way of thinking, one of the things they're really pushing is not just ancient Near Eastern texts, but they're really pushing that we need to look at documents from Second Temple Judaism, which is, you know, Second Temple Judaism was the time period in which, you know, Jesus came on the scene, the New Testament was written, it was the, the worldview that was going on, you know, in between the Testaments, all that kind of stuff. And so they're pushing things like uh, First Enoch is something that Michael Heiser talks a lot about, and the sin of the watchers in relation to Genesis 6. And most of what he says about that is fine, except that you realize that he's looking to First Enoch to interpret what Scripture says instead of the other way around. Mm. But um, the other thing I want to say about the Second Temple Judaism is that was the Judaism that was around when Jesus was here. And as I'm reading the Gospels, and right now I happen to be preaching through them at my church, and um, what I'm finding is that uh, rather than commending the interpretation of Second Temple Judaism when it came to how they were defining the terms of Scripture and understanding Scripture and even understanding the law or how one comes into a relationship with God or even their, you know, their, their notions about Yahweh. Um, what Jesus seems to talk to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the chief priests um, constantly about is, you guys think you understand the Scriptures. But you're obviously missing them, because I was the whole point of that whole thing, you know, and now I'm here, and you you can't kind of just constantly want to accuse me of breaking the Sabbath and going against the traditions of the elders, and that you want me to fall in line with your way of thinking, your way of doing things, but you're, you guys are all wrong. You have the whole thing all wrong. You're not really understanding. So let's go back to square one, and let me under, let me help you understand what God intended by this thing. And so what I'm seeing is that they're saying Second Temple of Judaism is the key to understanding the New Testament, 
But that's a really scary prospect to me because Second Temple Judaism, the people who are writing this stuff were the very people that Jesus was saying, no, you got it all wrong. Oh, boy. Oh, it, it seems to me like there would be no end to the directions you could go when you open this door and start trying to interpret the Bible through the lens of secular documents. Or, or I, even I just, and, and, I, and I wouldn't even say in general secular documents, but just all the different uh, texts that they're sourcing. Yeah, Second Temple Judaism. Yes, there is a faith there. They do follow Yahweh, but um, this is not divinely inspired text. And right. so when you start looking at these things, you're opening the doors to all types of, of rabbit trails and false doctrines that are going to creep in and you're going to leave Christianity more confused than it was when it started. I mean, we've got the Bible. We have all that we need. The Bible even says that, you know, that, that, that the Bible is, is God-breathed. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we would be perfect, thoroughly equipped thoroughly equipped unto all good works. We don't need these other documents to start bleeding into our worldview and influencing how we read the Bible. Uh, it's, it's just, um, boy, that, that is a dangerous thing. Um, you brought something else up too, that I thought was interesting. Uh, so explain to me this worldview. I'm trying to wrap my brain around it. Um, Dr. Heiser and, and many others that uh, uh, follow this worldview, they believe then God, okay, of course God is divinely inspired, okay, <laughs> but his scriptures then, um, he is going to write through men, we believe that too, okay, he's going to use their limitations, uh, their culture background, their education, uh, their literacy, you know, how, how articulate are they, uh, and then, but he knows what he's getting. When you said that phrase, it, it was uh, started got me thinking here. Okay, wait, does that mean that um, the door is open in their worldview for scientific mistakes, for prophetic mistakes, for just mistakes in general, mistakes about history, perhaps? Maybe they uh, lived in a culture that didn't quite catch something that happened in a nearby country and they described something in a historical context that's actually not correct. Are we to, a, are they opening the doors to uh, uh, error in the Bible? I, very much so. Uh, and oh. in fact, you know, uh, you know, Dr. Heiser is, is, is stated that and he has a lot of question and answer uh, episodes on the show. And um, it, this has come up a few times um, where uh, one, one of the things that he says quite often is that, you know, the Bible is a pre-scientific document. And what he means by that is that science was, and we would agree, that science as a discipline was founded after the Bible was written. Okay, so, you know, the scientific method and all of that stuff, um, it, you know, it didn't exist in the days of the Bible. We'd agree with that. But when, what he says is that when we go back to the creation account, um, that ministries like Answers in Genesis or many of the other people that you've interviewed on your, your podcast, you know, talking about 
um, the creation versus evolution, that he would say that's an irrelevant discussion. That whether you know whether evolution happened um, or not does not you know take anything away uh, from the Genesis account because that's not what they were talking about. They weren't writing to talk about science. And uh, in fact, what he would say is. He would believe that Genesis 1 through 11, basically, was written almost like last um, in, in terms of the, the Old Testament, that it was added uh, later on uh, through different edits and stuff. And he, he believes that because he, he would say that linguistically and, you know, cultural things uh, in the text are more Babylonian than they are Egyptian and uh, they seem to be making indictments against uh, Babylonian gods rather than Egyptian gods. And so you can tell right away that he's, he's not looking at Genesis 1 to tell us this is the way that creation actually happened. He's looking at it from the standpoint of like they're making a theological statement about the supremacy of Yahweh. And over these other these other gods of the surrounding nations, and so um, he's looking at it that way, and so he would say, you know, what you read in there in terms of scientific errors or you know differences in the way that the process took place versus what science says is completely irrelevant because they weren't trying to do that. And I, I'm coming from the standpoint that saying, okay, if it is God's word, it's not a scientific textbook. But if it says something that relates to science or history, then it better be right, because it, it's not ultimately coming from God. It's coming from or, or coming from man. It's coming from God, and so Correct. he's coming yeah. from a standpoint that says, "Well, yeah, it's coming from God, and he's ultimately superintending the text." But he's working with human authors, and he's working through the limitations of the human authors. So whereas we would say. Yeah, we fully believe that the, the Bible, you could say the Bible is fully human, but yet fully divine. And what, what we mean by that is just like uh, Peter says in his epistle when he talks about, you know, no prophet has spoken of their own private interpretation, but they, they've spoken as God has given them utterance, you know. And so it, it, we have a more sure word in prophecy than, you know, than even physical eyewitness testimony. And he's saying, you know, yeah, God used me, and I write in a specific style. I speak in a specific style. I speak in a specific language. I, I have specific life experiences. I witness particular things, and I have my own perspective. In, you know, when you talk about, like, the gospel writers, for instance, there's four gospels, and they're writing from their own perspective of the, the historical things that happened during the life and ministry of Jesus. But we would say, uh, ultimately, God is superintending that text and that there's signs in, in the text that there's no way in the world that this is purely human. And so God is overriding in some sense, and in some ways, you know, remarkable ways, to bring what he wanted in his word to, to, to bear. So if there's scientific errors, if there's historical errors, if, if especially with prophecy, I mean, God laid down the standard for prophecy. If it's not 100% accurate, you're supposed to kill the guy. So <laughs> if, if God 
if God is saying that, but then turning around and saying stuff that didn't really come to pass. Or um, an example of this is the openness that, like, say, a book like Daniel, um, Dr. Heiser has stated that he doesn't have any problem with Daniel maybe being written like 200 years before Christ instead of 400 years. And the reason why he would say that is, you know, if uh, Daniel had a prophecy about kingdoms that um, he's writing the thing or, or the thing is being written after the fact, but Daniel, you know, it's being claimed that Daniel legitimately had these, you know, prophecies or these visions, then, you know, that still really happened. And so, you know, they're they're writing it down, but that takes the whole, you know, the steam out of the sails when you have a prophecy that, you know, you're saying, well, he said it way back here when it hadn't happened yet, but we only wrote it after it happened. Um, that's no different than the Book of Mormon to me, um, you know, which has prophecies in there, but they're prophecies that they say were written back in 700 BC, but we didn't get the Book of Mormon until 1830, so show me some reason why I should believe that it came before that, you know? Um, and so that's where I, I, I'm coming from, and that's where I see the danger in, in it. And I think ultimately uh, there's just a danger, and you mentioned this earlier, that it, it really starts changing the way we view God, uh, the way we view Scripture, how seriously we take it, how seriously we can take what it says about Jesus and who he is. Uh, did those things really happen or did they not? Um, is it possible that those were just theological texts to, you know, kind of just get us to believe, but, you know, Jesus didn't really do these things or say these things. You know, that's what the, the Jesus seminar would have us believe. Right. And I, I think when you brought up this idea of the apostasy, and definitely within Mormonism, you know, you have this basically like 1,800-year gap between the, the death of the apostles, when the priesthood is lost, when plain and precious truths were taken out of the scriptures according to their beliefs, and then all the way in, you know, 1820 is where, you know, God supposedly shows up to this, you know, 14-year-old boy named Joseph Smith saying, okay, all the churches are just gone off the rocker, and I, I need to start this all over through you. I'm going to send, the, you know, and then Moroni's going to come, and he's going to show Joseph um, where these golden plates are. He's going to restore the text. and But that leaves this window of like 1,800 years in which God was just, his church was corrupt, and nobody was believing the right thing, but he's just sitting up in heaven going, yeah, I'll get to that eventually. You know? yeah. <laughs> I, I, and uh, and that that paints a horrible picture of God to me, rather than mm -hmm. the God who you know says in the Old Testament that He'll preserve His word to every generation, Amen. or the God who you know Jesus says that My words will never pass away. Yeah. And uh, it, it, you can't get around that kind of stuff. You you can't say both and. You can't say that God is faithful and that he did what he said he was going to do and, and say at the same time, but we believe the Bible has errors, it's been corrupted, and there's been some form of misunderstanding and apostasy in the church. And until we got these great new texts 
that, you know, have been buried in the dirt for all of these years, and now we're encountering them, and finally we can understand. And, you know, you guys understand these documents, so now could you please show us, could you teach us how we should understand the Bible? Well, that sounds a lot like Joseph Smith to me, and I'm, it just concerns me that we're headed in a direction that is the same direction that so many of these groups and false leaders have gone down through the years, believing that they have some kind of new revelation and making people dependent upon them as a central leader and that they're the only ones who have it right and everyone else has some kind of wrong interpretation of the scripture. It's not very long from that point that you start to see congregations formed around these new ideas. And so it's scaring me that, you know, the, the, the 1800s in America brought us several of these groups that are still with us today. You know, it brought us the whole Adventist movement and the Jehovah's Witness and the LDS and the Restoration Movement, and it brought us all of these things. And we're still dealing with having to keep people away from these groups and helping people in these groups to come to a knowledge of the real Jesus, real grace, the real Bible, all of these things. And I, I just would hate to see, and I know that Satan is, he's probably already at work to do it, but I would hate to see a whole new crop of these things come up. And when we still are dealing with the old ones, to have a whole new batch of them come up to where now we have to deal with this stuff and we can't even just focus our attention on, you know, helping people and these other groups to, to come to the truth and helping other people stay away from them. Um, and, and that's the direction I'm seeing it going. If you just look at the historical trends of the, the, the characteristics of these groups and how they came into being, and just where it went, I, I'm seeing us heading down the same road again, and I'm just concerned. Yeah, yeah, boy, it, it and and you brought something up there. It it seems like so many new movements are popping up. So many heresies are are coming up so rapidly. It it actually is overwhelming, and. Um, I can see why so many Christians just throw up their hands and say, I believe what I believe and that's it, you know, uh -huh. because <laughs> there's just so many movements that continue to pop up out of the dirt um, just to overwhelm us because it's just, there's just like, you know, every movement's got their own apologetics wing, if you will. And right. they always catch the average Christian completely off guard because they'll latch on to some obscure thing and then build this whole argument around it, and then they'll hit you with it, and you've never heard it before. You're looking at them sideways going, where in the world did you get that? And the average Christian just doesn't even know where to go from there. Uh, another new movement that I'm going to have Dr. Jason Lyle back on the podcast here within the next, uh, well, next next week. I'm going to be interviewing him, talking to him about this flat earth movement. Have you heard oh, of this? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And, and, you know, so many, uh, apologetics guys out there are just kind of blowing it off, seeing it as almost, you know, oh, this is another 
chemtrails, tinfoil hattery type thing. And in one sense, it's kind of wacky. But believe it or not, people are just signing up for this thing in droves. And suddenly there's this grand conspiracy of the governments of the world to convince the human population that the earth is actually round. It's, it's a sphere. And really it turns out that the earth is a flat disc um, with like a dome firmament over it. Uh, it. It is the strangest thing. Strangest thing. Sorry, that was, yeah, that was a and massive it, rabbit trail. But. Well, you know, that, that is a, you know, since we are talking about science in relation to the Bible and um, this idea that, you know, the Bible is a pre-scientific, document well uh it's interesting that the flat earthers have you know, even latched into their their thinking the verse from isaiah that talks about the circle of the earth and you know from those who are teaching you know the inspiration of scripture and from a scientific standpoint um we point to that verse as talking about, well, okay, he didn't say sphere, but we're, we're talking about an accurate description of the makeup of the, the earth um, in terms of it's not flat, you know, and the common belief, you know, even in the days of Columbus was, you you know, drive to the edge and then you fall off, you know, in the <laughs> space or something. And, you know, the ancients, you know, believe that Atlas was there and he's like holding us up and that kind of stuff. And, um, or, you know, we're on the backs of some kind of t- turtle or something. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to see that this kind of thing's coming up, but it's more interesting to see when they hit on the very passages that could help them to understand that, that you don't have to believe that there's a flat earth and if you and still believe in the Bible, the Bible actually had it right the whole time. We just had to catch up to what the Bible actually had to say. And the Bible is actually full of that stuff. And, you know, one of my favorites, stories in regards to this is uh, in Psalms and a couple of the prophets, they mentioned pathways in the seas. And oh, yeah. there, was a, there was a man, Matthew Fontaine Murray, who actually joined up with the Navy um, because he became fascinated with these, uh, these ter- this terminology in scriptures. And he became obsessed with thinking that there's more to it than just metaphorical language, that God is trying to tell us something. And you know, fast forward to today where, you know, my kids and I just went to go see Finding Dory, and there they were again with, you know, Crush the Turtle traveling in the currents below the sea. And, you know, this guy, he became the father of oceanography. He's the one who actually started the mapping of these currents and these um, things that now has become a scientific discipline because uh, that's used by all, you know, ocean goers to be able to efficiently get from point A to point B in the fastest way and to be able to stay away from harmful currents that would deter you. And so, that, you know, that's one of my favorite, you know, favorites is because here's a guy, the thing didn't exist. And then now you have this guy founding a, a, an area of science because of the Bible. And that was his primary inspiration. You know, and another fun one, I think it has to do with, um, you know, washing of hands is just something that we take for granted. We, we think of it as commonplace. Now you go into a grocery store and they have antibacterial soap, you know, when, before you go in because, you know, other people have used these carts kind of thing. <laughs> so um, we take it for granted, but the guy who tried to implement washing of hands in between autopsies 
and performing like operations with women who were pregnant, he got laughed out of, you know, the profession and he got his license taken away. And that wasn't really too long ago. And and even in spite of the fact that the death toll went way down when they implemented his idea at first. And then after they kicked him out, it went back up. And they're thinking, wow, that's a coincidence, you know. <laughs> and yet you have, you have Moses who, you know, according to this whole ancient Near Eastern thing, the guy grew up in Egypt. He was raised in the, the wisdom and literature of the Egyptians. If anybody's going to write something that reflects Egypt, now would be the time to do it. Well, you read the medical texts of the Egyptians, and a lot of there's a lot of different feces from different animals involved, and things that you go, ew, okay, not to mention like, oh, I wonder why they had so many people dying on the table. Well, when Moses comes along in his law, he doesn't use scientific language. He doesn't, you know, God doesn't d explain all the microbes and bacteria and viruses and all of these things to them. He doesn't hand them a medical text. But what he says is, hey, if you have to go, just go outside the camp, bury it, and cover it, and then come back in, wash yourself thoroughly, and you'll be clean. Hey, if you happen to have, have to touch a dead body, or somebody who has like leprosy or you know some kind of other physical disease. Wash your hands really good because until you do, you're unclean, and you can't come in with God's people. And stuff like if somebody has a disease like leprosy or if they have something that's really contagious, God says, why don't you send them outside the camp with all the others who have it until they're better, and then they can come back in. Well, we call that quarantine. God didn't say quarantine, but he describes these processes that we take for granted as the common sense stuff, but they weren't implemented until really, really recently. And here he is thousands of years ago explaining all of this stuff and in just like kind of passing knowledge, you know, I'll just mention it in passing kind of thing. And and so this isn't as pure as, you know, saying that these are human guys who make mistakes and who write from the perspective of their own culture. And, you know, they just kind of, they're figuring it out as they go along and God's working through the whole thing. It, it's not, you can't say that. You can't, the Bible doesn't really give you that option. You know, you have to figure out a way to explain how Moses knew this stuff and how the prophets foretold, you know, empires in advance before they even existed. They, they foretold the careers of specific rulers, and mm -hmm. not to mention all the, the very specific stuff they said about Jesus and his, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, the whole thing. I mean, just absolutely amazing. And to bring the Bible back down, and this is another thing that's really scary to me, Michael, is... Another thing that I'm seeing is when you talk about false doctrine groups, okay, fringe Christian groups, if you, whatever you want to call them, um, what happens is the key leader, they start elevating their word over God's word, 
they start de-elevating God and Jesus, and then next comes the whole salvation by works thing and de-elevating the cross. And I, I just, when I see people going after God's word in any way, shape, or form, or going after Jesus or the character of God or the, the oneness of God in this case, I, I'm, I'm really leery. I'm really hesitant. I'm really cautious. I'm concerned. Yeah. Amen. And and you should be. You should be. So <laughs> we've we've gone a little long today and it's been a fascinating conversation. We we definitely um rabbit trailed off into this area where um we've we've talked a lot about the worldview of Dr. Michael Heiser, but it's not just him. And and we're not, you know, obviously had no intention of, you know, slandering anything like that. Uh, defaming or, or anything along those lines, but uh, it's a trend, and he's just one of those out there that is following this trend. Uh, perhaps he might be one of those pushing it more than the others, um, but uh, fascinating stuff, and, and yes, very dangerous when you start elevating the words of another document, be it the Talmud or the Book of Mormon or the Watchtower magazine or ancient Near East documents, you inadvertently, or, well, or intentionally, lower or diminish God's word. You start casting doubt upon various things you find within the scriptures. Uh, and yes, you elevate men. There there starts becoming this, this element of elitism going on, where one group has all the answers, and everybody else is kind of bumping into walls into the dark. And... Um, it, it it well it it tends towards false doctrine uh in in a lot of dangerous areas so uh, friends i guess what we need to take from this is that god has given us all we need with the scriptures we already have everything we need and if we stick with the bible the bible interprets the bible stick with the bible Understand good biblical hermeneutics, how to rightly divide the word of truth, and, and, and just stick with the scriptures. You will find everything you need right there. So, uh, again, this is Jason Oaks. Uh, his website, uh, peopleofthefreegift.com, and uh, a lot of good helpful videos uh, as well, uh, a lot of good audio and articles um, great place for some good resources. Uh, Jason, thanks for coming on. It was, it was a really interesting conversation. Thanks again for having me, Michael. Always a pleasure. Okay. Well, that pretty much sums it up guys. Uh, this subject of ancient near Eastern documents, uh, I believe this is going to be coming up, uh, more and more in this podcast. This is a problem. And uh, honestly, I don't hear a whole lot of people talking about this. Um, so I'm going to do my best to study and look into this, uh, try to find out more what's going on here. And I'll be sure to, God willing, report back in a podcast uh, or, or possibly multiple podcasts in the future as much as I can find out uh, also, on that note, uh, we did name drop today multiple times, and as you guys know in this podcast, I'm not afraid to do that, uh, but I just want to say, uh, Dr. Michael Heiser, I, in no way am I questioning, or Jason, questioning his salvation. Uh, I have listened to him on uh, a few occasions in the past, 
And I, I can tell he really does love the Lord. Uh, he's a good man. I think he's just mistaken on this point. Uh, and, I, and I believe Jason would feel the same way. So uh, I just want to throw that in there. Uh, there's no intentions of trying to bring the guy down or anything along those lines. Uh, he's In many areas, he's doing great work. Uh, but this particular area has got me concerned. So, uh, yeah, we did talk about Dr. Heiser. But no, I... It, no intentions of trying to uh, uh, drag his name through the dirt by any way, shape, or form. So anyway, uh, with that, uh, guys, next week we're going to be hearing from Dr. Jason Lyle. Uh-oh, there is something really strange going on here. There, believe it or not, and I've had so many of you people write me about this, what is up with this new movement within Christianity teaching that the earth is flat? That the Bible actually teaches that the earth is flat? Strange. Okay, so next week, and this episode is already recorded, uh, we'll be hearing from Dr. Jason Lyle on this subject of does the Bible teach a flat earth as well as what does science have to say about a flat earth versus a spherical earth. I know, why in the world would we do an episode on that? I mean, seriously, that should be a forehead-slapping moment. Of course, the earth is spherical. But believe it or not, this movement is growing by leaps and bounds. What is going on here? I nearly fell out of my chair when I first saw this. I thought it was hilarious until I realized so many people are getting taken by it. So that is next week. And uh, so that pretty much wraps it up for today. I love you guys. And we'll see you next week. Sing it out loud. in some ways, is becoming more like the LDS. Jason, what did you mean by that? Well, what I have in mind is uh, the conversation actually usually goes the other way.